Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer today. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, beautiful day, the sunshine, the nice crisp weather. We pray that uh, your, your spirit will join us, that our hearts will draw into unity, our minds will have discernment, that we will see and know your character, your nature, your kingdom, and, and we will uh, walk with you, we pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number 12 in our quarterly, the Gospel in Galatians, and the title this week is Living by the Spirit. In the uh, memory verse, somebody read the memory verse for us, Galatians 5.16. But walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16. Walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Let the Spirit guide you. Let the Spirit guide you. You're living by the Spirit's will. The Spirit is in control of your life. You live according to His will, not your own. If you look at Sunday's lesson, it, uh, the first paragraph it says, Walking is a metaphor drawn from the Old Testament that refers to the way a person should behave. Paul himself, a Jew, makes use of this metaphor often in his letters to describe the type of conduct that should characterize the Christian life. He uses this metaphor, uh, his use of this metaphor is also likely connected to the first name that was associated with the early church. Before the followers of Jesus were called Christians, they were known simply as the followers of the way. This suggests that at a a very early date, Christianity was not merely a set of theological beliefs that centered on Jesus, but was also a way of life to be walked. What do you think about that paragraph? Yes. Does this mean walking by the Spirit, that we walk through the Spirit? Through the Spirit. Or that we walk with the Spirit together as as a team? How about both? How about both? We walk through and together. You can separate them. Yeah, can can you? If you're if if you're walking through the Spirit, the Spirit's empowering, enlightening, ennobling. Uh, can you really do that without walking with Him? Like the Bible Thank- says, how can walk two that they not agree, not agree? Yes, exactly. So I think it's both. But what do you think about this paragraph? It suggests that the very er- at, at a very early date, Christianity was not merely a set of theological beliefs that centered on Jesus, but was also a way of life to be walked. Does that suggest at a later date it became a, merely a, a, a set of beliefs and not a walk anymore? Well, do you like the idea that Christianity is supposed to be practical, applicable in a, in a way that we live our lives? Absolutely. Yeah, rather than just simply an idea or construct to, to adhere to or, 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 or a set of, uh, of rules that we claim that we believe, it's, it's, a, it's a method of living, it seems to me. The second paragraph, down at the bottom, it says, Conduct in the Old Testament simply was not defined as walking, but more particularly as walking in the law. Halakha is the legal Jewish term Jews use to refer to the rules and regulations found in both the law and the rabbinic traditions of the forefathers. While Halakha usually is translated the Jewish law, the word actually is based on the Hebrew word, for to walk, and literally means the way of going. What do you hear in this paragraph? Do you hear a suggestion that the Old Testament walk was somehow different than the Christian walk? Do you hear a suggestion along those lines? Yes. Does it sound almost like we talked about a couple weeks ago about a dispensation of law that predated Christ, and now there's a dispensation of grace? Does it almost sound that way when they talk about the walk in the law, the rabbinic law? Hmm. I got to thinking about that. Do you think that's true? Do you think the Old Testament is a walk in the law? 
Well, I guess it depends on how you define the law, right? How do you define the law? Well, in this context, it sounds like because they brought in the, the ideas here of the rules and regulations found both in the rabbinic traditions of their forefathers, it sounds like it is talking about a, a, a regulations and rules, not the law of love, the principles. It doesn't sound like that, does it? No. If you define the law as the law of love, God's principles that he built his universe to walk upon, um, then the Old Testament and the New Testament, you could say, are both walks in the law, if that's how you understand the law. But that's not what I think they're saying here. So I... Jesus fulfilled the law. Meaning, he met all its claims, paid all its penalties, and um, that's how it's traditionally... When you say Jesus fulfilled the law, isn't that how it's traditionally interpreted? Yeah, is that what it means? Or Jesus was full of the law. His life is what the law is. Well, exactly. Jesus, where does the law have its origination? Where does the law originate? In God's character. In Christ perfectly revealed the character of God. So he perfectly revealed what the law looks like. So he was, the law was full in Christ. Yeah, it's a living law, a law upon which life is based. Whereas somehow it gets represented in more imperialistic ways. You know, imperial human governments impose law, and that's how we often in our minds, this lens that we have on that we see law through, um, and it sounds like some people look at the Old Testament that way, that God, you know, gave law and they walked in the law, the, the regulations and, and rabbinic rules. Well, let's look at the Old Testament and see what we find. Genesis 5.24, Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him away. Was Enoch walking in a system of rules? Was he walking in the spirit? Yes. Was he walking in the law of love? Yes. Yeah. Or here's another one. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his, the people of his time, and he walked with God. Was Noah walking in a legal system of rules? No. Yes or no? No. Legal system of rules. Rabbinic rules? No. Re- regulations? No. no. Was, was Noah walking in the spirit? And was he walking in the law of love? Yes. Um, this is um, Jacob speaking. Then he blessed Joseph, or speaking about Jacob, then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd my life this day. Uh, Abraham and Isaac walked with God. Was that a system of rules and regulations? Were they, walk, were they walking in the Spirit? Yes. In Micah 6, verse 8, we read, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Okay, so Micah 6, everybody heard that. Is that speaking about a system of rules, a legal walking? Or is that talking about walking in the Spirit? Uh, thank you. How about Deuteronomy 5? It says, Deuteronomy 5, 33, verse 6, 1. Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. Is this walking? Because we've got now the Lord your God has commanded you. Do you understand this to mean God says, walk in the legal system of rules, and if you do, then I will use my power to miraculously make good things happen for you. Is that what he's saying? Or is he saying, live in harmony with the laws I built the universe to run upon, which the ordinances are designed to teach you, and you will prosper and thrive as you live in harmony with the way life is designed. So even in this instruction, is he talking about a legal system of 
Walking, or is he talking about walking in the Spirit? Or here's another one, Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Is this a legal system of walking? No, it's not. Are they walking? Is he asking them to walk in the Spirit? I mean, it, and we had another one from Micah, and we could go through the Old Testament over and over and over again, and you're going to find that the walking in the Old Testament was the walking in the Spirit. Where does this idea come from? This idea of a walking in a legal, legal system? Human nature. From Satan. <laughs> Satan is the original legalist. He is the one who has twisted God's design, his laws, the principles he's built his universe to run upon, and turned it into a a checklist of rules imposed by a powerful uh, dictator of the universe because he wants to take God's law, turn it in such a way that we see God as an imperial Nero. That is how he accuses. That's how he accuses God, exactly. God's law is arbitrary. God enforces rules upon. God, God is the punisher. God is the source of death. And of course, in prophecy we have, the Daniel 7 prophecy, the little horn power will seek to change the law. And how do they change it? From this law of God's universe that he built things to run upon to an imperial system of rules that we have to obey. And all Christians believe it that way now, pretty much. Yeah, but the people that you <clears throat> named in the Old Testament were those that knew God as a friend. So they knew what he was. They knew that he was a God of love. We have the same situation today. People that really don't have a relationship with God, don't really know God as a God of love, are legalistic type people. You know, when you look at even our church today, there's a lot of people that follow the letter of all the rules. We can't do this, we can't do that. But do they know God as a personal friend, as a God of love? No. Yeah. Uh, Don't we find that that's exactly right? How about 2,000 years ago when Christ came? Some knew him. Some didn't know him. It made a big difference, didn't it? Yeah. Those that didn't know him, they knew the rules, though, didn't they? They knew the rules, didn't know the, the, the one who created the universe. So, now, what I just walked through, I gave you many, many texts here from the Old Testament showing that in the Old Testament times, they were to walk in the Spirit, not in the law. True? We agree? Yeah. Yet, we'd also then find, wait a minute, at Sinai, what was God giving them? Laws and rules. Okay, if they're to walk in the Spirit, not in the law, then why is God giving laws and rules at Sinai? Which he did, didn't he? And, and a whole, if you ever, how many have read Leviticus? Okay, if you want a system of rules and a lot of regulations and a lot of detailed do's and don'ts and, and I mean, precision down to even how you, the clothes that you wear. Leviticus spells it all out, doesn't it? Wow. So why did God give all that? Them to know him. And how does that help us? How does what he did at Sinai help people know him? It, it, assuming it operates the way God designed, and, and we can talk about how it got misdirected and, and, and confused people, but if it operates the way God designed, how does it help us know him? God of order. Okay, of God of order. Teaches us something about how God is orderly. Okay, what else? From the looking at it, it doesn't look like a lot of love. It looks like a lot of regulation. But to look at it through the leading of the Holy Spirit, it takes on a whole different significance Okay. regarding the character of God. Has anybody ever parented any children or run a psychiatric unit, which is very similar? 
Is it not? Yes, I have a couple of people working in a psychiatric unit. Yes, very similar. Do psychiatric units have a lot of very structured rules? Do parents in their home create structure with rules? And what is the purpose for either in a psychiatric unit or in a home to create rules that create structure? What's the purpose of that? Okay, create a safe environment. Number one, why do you have to make rules to create a safe environment? Why is that necessary? There's a reason you're creating the rules for a safe environment. Why? Yes. Because those that the rules are for don't understand the oh. need to be like the parent or the God. So those that we're creating these rules to create safe and structured environments for don't either in themselves understand or have the ability to self-govern themselves in harmony with healthy principles. And without those rules, they would be living chaotically, destructively to themselves, to others. And so the rules that we set are not designed to control and judge people, but to create an environment for health and healing. Yes? The first four commandments, aren't they to show our love to God? And the last six, to show love to our neighbor? There's no question that the first four are based on love to God, but to, to, what, what is the purpose of those? We want to just stick with the ten for a minute and talk about the purpose of the ten. If you read the Hebrew in the beginning of each one, does it say, in, in the order of the verbiage, thou shalt not, or not thou shall? It says not thou shall. Think of the implication, if you flip, flip that around. It's not good English. But if you think about it, not thou shalt. What does this mean? You see, thou shalt not, it's a command upon you. You shall not do this. Not thou shalt is a promise. Because if you read the, the very beginning of the commandments, it's I am the Lord who has delivered you from Egypt. And not thou shalt do these things. In other words, you are going to be changed by my spirit, so you won't do these things. It's a promise of what you're going to look like when I have my way done in your life. This is how your heart will look. You won't have any other gods before me. You won't take my name in vain. You won't make images. You won't desecrate the Sabbath. You won't dishonor your parents. You won't commit murder. You won't bear false witness. You won't, you won't, you won't. Rather than thou shalt not, and there's a burden upon us, crushing us down, oh, I've got to work really hard, do all these things. This is what God's describing when I have my way with you. This is how you will live. Because what's the covenant? I will write my law where? In your heart and mind, and you won't do any of this stuff anymore. You have a new heart and a right spirit. You have new motives and new principles. Okay, yes. The emphasis should be placed on the word you. You don't these things that the other people do. You are my people. You are different. Yes, but the emphasis is placed on God doing this in us so that we're changed not to be this thing. Then you will be a priest, a holy nation to the world for me. See, it was God's plan to change them to live in harmony with his principles so that they would be a light to the world. That was his plan. But what happened is, it gets twisted by the evil one. Everything God does, Satan takes and tries to misinterpret and misrepresent so that they see this as a list of rules that they have to now work to adhere to. Monday's lesson. It's focusing on the conflict between the carnal nature and the spiritual nature. And the first paragraph says, the struggle that Paul describes is not the struggle of every human being. It refers specifically to the inward tug of war that exists in the Christian because humans are born in harmony with the desires of the flesh. 
Uh, it is only when we are born anew by the Spirit that a real spiritual conflict begins to emerge. This does not mean that non-Christians never experience moral conflict. They certainly do. But even that conflict is ultimately a result of the Spirit. The struggle of the Christian, however, takes a new dimension because the believer possesses two natures that are at war with each other, the flesh and the Spirit. Thoughts about this paragraph? We, how many have heard their whole life this flesh-spirit idea? Do you have clarity in what it means, your flesh? Do you have clarity in what it means, your spirit? Somebody clear, clear that up for the, for the new convert who's just been baptized today. What is your flesh? What is your spirit? What is your carnal nature? What is your spiritual nature? The carnal nature is what you're born with. Everybody's born with that. The spiritual nature is whenever you give your life to Christ mm-hmm. and the, spirit, the Holy Spirit comes in to guide you then. Does that clear it up for everybody? No, not completely. But that's... <laughs> you say you're... I'm purposely pressing us because we use these terms historically as if we know exactly what they mean. Do we know what they mean? So one of all the fittest me, me, me versus I give up myself, I give my life oh. so that you may become closer to Christ. Okay, we're getting down to the root of it now. We're born in a survival of the fittest, me first, fear-based, self-centered, watching out for number one, mode of drive that drives us. That's our carnal nature. And when we're converted, when we have a new heart, we have a heart that loves others more. I will, greater love is no man to give his life for a friend, a self-sacrificing heart, which is counter to the heart that needs to protect me and I'll hurt others to, to protect myself. I will now give myself to protect others. Those are the, when we get down to it, we see those motives at war in the heart. And don't we all struggle with that? From whether it's going to be, am I going to get the biggest piece of pie or am I going to, you know, get the smallest piece of pie and let somebody else go first? Okay? I mean, it really comes down to these things at times, doesn't it? Yeah. So with that in mind, this battle, this victory, how do we experience this victory over this drive we were born with? Is it an instant victory that we accept Jesus Christ, we have the, the, we've been born again, we've been symbolically baptized because we've had our hearts immersed in the Spirit, and now it's over, we're done, it's, it's it. Did they have anything like this in the Old Testament that Paul's talking about? Well, I think they did, and I think, I think actually David man after God's own heart, wrote us a description of the exact process of how this happens. And, and I'm going to go through that with you. It's, a, it's the 23rd Psalm. It says, Lord of my shepherd, I shall not want. God is watching out for me, and I don't need to worry about where my support comes from. He will provide for my soul needs, my soul needs. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He will first provide soul nurturance, support, sustenance to strengthen me and prepare me for what's coming. He restores my soul. He's going to heal my inner man, cleanse my conscience, and restore my individuality. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. He's going to lead me in a path which restores me to righteousness, a path that makes me right inside, like he originally intended man to be when he created Adam. That's the path he's going to lead me in so that he and his ways will be glorified in my life. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He then, after providing for me, after strengthening me, after cleansing my conscience, removing my guilt, restoring my individuality, leads me in a path that, that to ultimate righteousness, the path which is through the valley that feels like I'm going to die. The valley in which self surrenders and is crucified. The valley which frees me from the domination of fear and selfishness. And this is the crux for many people. They, they come to God and they say, Lord, I surrender my life, lead me, change me. And the Lord begins 
First, there's usually often a period, a little, a little small period of peace by the green pastures and still waters where they're, they're getting strength, they're coming to know God, they're having some confidence, they're feeling the joy of God's presence. And then, often there's some truth, some enlightenment that comes to, to give them some confidence and wisdom that God's leading. And then the, then the Holy Spirit, Christ leads them into a valley, into an issue, into a conflict in which self is going to be crucified, in which it feels like their guts are going to be ripped out. And this is where many turn back. Oh no, it's too, too tough for me. And they turn back into what comforted them before. Whatever that comfort measure was. Relationships, addictions, whatever it was. And then their life falls apart and, and goes into the ditch again. And they come back and surrender Christ and say, Lord, I've messed my life up. I can't handle it. You lead me. And so he gives them a little period of peace. And he begins to lead them. And he brings them back to that point where they have to die to self. And they turn back. And it's when we understand that we have to go through this valley in which it feels like we're dying on the inside. But his rod and staff comforts me. He, prepared, he comforts me with the shepherd's rod and staff, which the shepherd uses to beat back my attackers and lift me out of the ditch. Sadly, many people have read this, uh, his rod and staff that comforts me, and spare the rod, spoil the child, that means that the Lord's going to beat us into submission. No, it's a shepherd's rod. The shepherd beats the wolf and lifts the lamb out of the ditch. That's what he's saying. He'll watch over me. Uh, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my en- enemies. With my critics and accusers and enemies all around, he provides me a rich bounty of spiritual food to strengthen and develop my soul. He anoints my head with oil. He provides his spirit to enlighten, to cleanse, to renew, to give wisdom to my mind. My cup runs over. My heart, renewed, cleansed, freed from fear and selfishness, the domination of such, runs over with love for God and my fellow man. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Living a life of love results, results in goodness and mercy following in my wake wherever I go. I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And having been recreated by God, I will forever be a living stone in the Lord's heavenly temple. Isn't it cool? I think this is God's plan to heal and restore us. Well, and everybody walks through the valley of the shadow of death. You can either walk through with the Lord or walk through by yourself. You can't avoid trouble. Actually, I disagree. Everybody doesn't walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Everybody's brought to points like that, but many turn back. They turn back into their alcohol, into their drugs, into the comfort measures, um, into the things that avoid this crucifixion of self. Instead, they gratify. And so you're interpreting that always as a Christian trial and never just trials in general? I don't see this psalm because if you read the context it's about restoring my soul about leading me the path of righteousness about being forever in the temple of god it's about transforming regenerating it's not i'm just making the point that if you are christian doesn't mean your life is going to be worse than a person who's not a christian your your life's not going to be worse your life's going to be much better I'm just because you're going to have internal peace. You're going to have peace inside yourself. Because I think a lot of times young people think that if they follow the Lord, the Lord will then send them trials (laughs) that they wouldn't have if they were not Christians. And that's something that's commonly believed. Well, when you understand it in the model that we present it, we are all sick. And when when you're sick and you go to the doctor, the doctor will take you in the path that's going to result in wellness. And often that path results... That pathway is through a process of intense discomfort, whether it's um, if you have pneumonia and you have to have somebody do the the beating on your lungs, you have to do your incentive spirometer and you have to do the coughing and you have, this is not comfortable to do these things. But if you choose not to go to the doctor, you're still sick. Right. And you get worse and worse and worse. So you don't go through the valley that feels like you're going to die. Yes. 
You don't escape suffering. Yes, but you don't go through the valley of the shadow of death because you don't die inside to self. You just suffer. This is this is a specific process. Let's get to I'm gonna I'm gonna expand it a little more. You're gonna see examples where this is a specific process that people have gone through in scripture as our example. But first, before before we go there, I want to ask, what are some of the common well actually one of the counterfeits to this process of God's restoring and healing and transforming us? This process of dying to self and being reborn within. What is a counterfeit to that? Eastern mysticism, Eastern meditation. Um, and Eastern meditation is becoming very popular in the West and in Christianity. And I want to explore that with you and what happens in the brain of, of people and, and why, why it's making inroads into Christianity. You see, we are wired, we've already talked about this from birth, through so Adam and Eve sin, they ran and hid because they were afraid. The, the fear circuitry called the amygdala, the alarm circuitry, the limbic system of our brain, has an ascendancy in our being now. We are wired for fear and insecurity. We're wired to watch out for number one. Because of, because of the fear circuits, when the fear circuits of your brain fire constantly, these are people, we're, we're anxious, we're tense, we're worried, we have trouble sleeping, and what does this lead to? Peripherally, it activates your immune system. And the reason it activates your immune system is because if you're walking along out in the Smoky Mountains and you come face-to-face with a black bear, you're going to have your alarm circuitry fire. You're going to get anxious and stressed really quick, fearful. And... When that alarm circuitry fires face-to-face with a black bear, we're wired for the immune system to turn on because there's a good chance your skin integrity might be violated. If you survive, you may be mauled and your skin integrity may be violated. And your immune system is like your body, our nation's national guard. Your immune system is there to protect your body from invasion, invasion from microscopic attackers, microorganisms, when we get uh, mauled by some threat. And so when we get stressed, our body automatically kicks on our immune system to prepare for invasion. But the immune system that gets turned on is not the immune system that that gets activated from vaccines. The immune system from vaccines is called your um, acquired immunity, and uh, uh, you should conceptualize that as a sniper. A sniper identifies one specific target and snipes that one target, and that's it. That's what, when you get a vaccine, your body produces antibodies that will hit that one particular organism, that one invader, and nothing else. No, this type of immunity, the immunity of the stress cascade, is called your innate immunity. And this is what happens, consider a home invader, and you have a a sawed-off shotgun under your bed. Okay, Sawed-off shotgun blasts a wide area, gets the home invader, but guess what else gets damaged? The home. The home gets damaged. And guess in our analogy what the home is? Your body. Okay, So when you're under chronic stress, you activate your immune system because your body, under chronic stress, you're telling your body, prepare for invasion, but there's no invader. We're just living in a Western society, worried all the time, stressed, anxious. So our immune system activates and it begins releasing these inflammatory cytokines that prepares the body for invasion to kill any invaders again, but there's no invaders. So guess what's getting damaged under chronic stress? The body's getting damaged under chronic stress. And so I think you all know chronic stress, chronic worry, chronic anxiety increases your risk of ulcers. Uh, heart attacks, strokes, high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, um, depression, irritability, um, dementia. Um, all these things happen because the chronic damage to the house because we're activating our immune system through this chronic stress. Eastern religions have as a primary part of their worship experience focused meditation, which is a mind focusing on emptiness and nothingness. And this type of focused meditation actually calms and turns off the fear circuitry of the brain, resulting in documentable improved health. People have less 
um, less, uh, uh, their blood pressure is lower, they have less heart disease, they have less dementia, um, they have significant, well-documented health benefits from this type of meditation. Lower heart rates, lower anxieties, improvements in depression, better recovery from surgery, less pain medicines in the aftermath of surgery, all documented to happen with this type of, with this type of meditation. Why are these results of this type of meditation, and I'm going to tell you in a moment why this is not healthy and why this is not in God's design for us. I'm going to give you some science behind that and why. But why is it that these results are better than what Christianity offers? What traditional Christianity offers? Let's put it that way. Why is this better? Because traditional Christianity teaches a false system of beliefs infected with imperial Romanism, with an imposed law, imposed penalties, punishing and wrathful God, all of which incites fear and activates the fear cascade, causing more of this stress and anxiety and inflammation and health problems. Fear-inducing religions activate this cascade. Christ, Jesus, taught a love-based Christianity which removed fear. But Christianity after Christ became infected with this human governmental concept of how God runs his universe, and we live in fear of a God. And I'm going to tell you, right over here in the bookstore in Collegedale, a friend of mine was in there when my book was still permitted to be sold over there, and was uh, looking at the book, and a pastor of a local church came up and said, oh, don't buy that book. Don't buy that book. Why? Well, because that book doesn't teach the truth about God. We, well, God and this is what the pastor said. God is the great policeman in the sky. Local pastor told her that. Great policeman in the sky. Now, when you're driving along in Chattanooga, and you look up and your rear view mirror has a cop, police officer on your tail, and you turn right and he turns right, and you turn left and he turns left, and he stays right behind you, what happens to your stress level? <laughs> Do you calm and feel more relaxed? Oh, I feel so safe. I've got a police officer escort keeping me safe. <laughs> No, your anxiety level goes up, your fear cascade, you're getting stressed, the, the whole inflammatory factors we're just talking about. And when you view God that way, this is how you go through life. He's got his angels watching me. He's writing down everything I do. He's going to punish me if I don't do it. Okay? And you live this life of fear and insecurity, and you don't get these positive benefits that you get from Eastern meditation. Does that mean Eastern meditation is good? It's not. And why is it not good? The problem with this type of meditation... This type of meditation doesn't enhance our understanding of God's universe, provide insight into the human dilemma, what we're actually struggling with in our characters and nature, or bring truth into the mind, and the truth will set you free and heal. We're we're enslaved with lies and distortions. This empty meditation doesn't do anything to ennoble the mind, character, with truth. Number one. Two, it doesn't bring us the knowledge of God, his methods, and principles how his universe was designed to run and the way it was built. So we can intelligently cooperate with him to apply his methods to our life. We can't do that. We can just empty our minds, calm the neural circuitry. It doesn't result in death to self and the experiencing of a new heart and Christ-like character. It doesn't resolve distorted beliefs. It doesn't create a trust relationship with the creator. This type of meditation. It promotes a greater self-centered focus on one's own ability to heal and fix oneself. It doesn't recreate the spirit temple into God's dwelling place, useful for God to enlighten and shine through with saving truth in a dying world. In other words, this empty meditation doesn't open the heart to the spirit to, to dwell within, to use a noble and enlighten and shine forth his 
purposes in the world. Thus, this type of meditation fun- functions to stunt the growth of the individual, the character growth, impairs true enlightenment, and voids the experience of unity with Christ. It undermines individuality for the transcendent experience of unity with the cosmos. Our individuality doesn't develop. And Eastern mysticism also fails to understand the real problem, what is wrong with us, and thus its interventions come up short. See, from our perspective, we understand God's law of love as the design template that he built the universe to run upon, and that sin is lawlessness or trying to operate outside his design, being selfish, self-centered. And we understand that there are these two antagonistic principles said earlier, loving others, survival of the fittest, me first, battling it out in our hearts, and that conversion is the process not of meditation to calm the fear circuitry, but following the shepherd into the valley of the shadow of death in which we die to self. And this is a time of great anguish and great anxiety as Jacob's night when he wrestled with the angel. This was a time of great, or Jesus' experience in Gethsemane, a time of great anguish and great anxiety as he was wrestling with the human nature that he took upon himself that was tempting him to act selfishly. Or Peter, after his denial, went out and wept bitterly and wrestled with the selfishness in his heart that led him to try to protect self rather than stand up for Christ. Or David, after Nathan confronted him with the, with the parable, how his heart then was convicted and he realized the wickedness and self-centeredness in his heart that he would exploit and hurt others. He went out and wrestled with self and was converted. There is a process when we're led in the valley of the shadow of death in which we come face to face with the ugly, self-centered, me-first principle that drives us that, that we, we actually go through anguish and ultimately die to self and surrender to Christ and experience a new heart. Eastern meditation doesn't bring a person to that place. It avoids it. Yes? So does the Spirit stop working with people who do Eastern meditation, or do they too uh, continue to face some of those things that all of us face as human beings and, and the challenges we face? Oh, I don't think the Spirit stops working with anybody who still has faculties that are sensitive to the movements of the Spirit. So the Spirit is working from, with every human being on earth who still possesses faculties that are able to respond to the Spirit's movement. Because I work with uh, GIs who come back from Iraq and come back from Afghanistan, and their minds are really troubled. And I, I, uh, some of the guys I work with are Buddhist Roshis in San Francisco and from the Bay Area. And it seems to me that they have a, 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 a great effect upon their lives by just calming those thoughts, by just getting away from the horror of some of the things that they've done, some of the things that they've seen. Uh, Christianity is not a place that they turn to right away. But they turn to this. It, it, it doesn't seem to me the Spirit stops working with them, that showing them that, that you need salvation, that you, that you still are weak beyond all capacity and that, that Jesus Christ is your Savior, just because they calm their thoughts. Yes, and, and um, what is it that's driving this terrible anxiety in the aftermath of a combat situation? Well, I think, you know, for some of the kids who picked up bodies at 12-year-olds and, you know, many of the ones that I've talked to and hand them to their parents, I think this, you know, that's just one example. You know, just one kid talking to me, a bullet goes through his friend's head and he falls down on his lap and is still talking to him. I think these sights for an 18, for a 19-year-old are hard to escape. I don't think I could do it. You know, some of the things that they've seen and some of the things that they've done are uh, of such extreme nature 
that are human nature that we can't deal with those things. And I think that having some sort of, uh, you know, for them seeking help in any direction, because a lot of doctors give them drugs. Uh, so to, to have that meditation, to have some techniques. You just, you just you, you, you brought up some wonderful things here. Um, you mentioned a lot of doctors give drugs. And what are the purpose of giving the drugs? What are they trying to achieve with the drugs? Why do even people seek the drugs? What are they wanting from the drugs? Well, I think most psychiatrists that I know in the military, they can see somebody for half an hour every two or three weeks. So there's nothing they can really do. What they want to do is keep them from maybe doing harm to their family, doing harm to somebody else. Sometimes they just want them to get back out on the battlefield. So the purpose of the drugs are to... They're pain relievers. They're just to calm the stress, the anxiety, the intense angst that they're going through. That's the purpose of the drugs. It's not to actually resolve the underlying conflict that's causing all the angst. What's Eastern meditation doing? Same exact thing. It's a different form of drugging oneself. It doesn't fix the problem. It only calms the fear circuitry. They don't feel the distress. Now, you have to understand, we feel this kind of distress, this kind of anxiety, because there is a problem. There's something is wrong. It's like feeling pain when you have a cavity. You feel pain because something's wrong. Now, we can give Novocaine, and there's a place for Novocaine. We don't want to not use Novocaine. There's a place for it. But if we only use Novocaine and don't actually resolve the source of why they're having pain, then they don't get well. They actually, the cavity gets worse over time. And I'm suggesting that these forms of meditation, um, if they are taken as the ultimate source of religious truth, will lead in a path in which no true transformation happens, but symptom aversion can happen. We can avoid symptoms. Now, will I be so dogmatic as to say there can't be a place, maybe, for using some meditation to help calm oneself enough to begin then this wrestling through the, and, and resolving the underlying issues that cause the conflict? I'm not going to be so rigid to say that. But I was talking really about a salvation method that Eastern mysticism and Eastern meditations are a counterfeit to God's plan of salvation. Not necessarily as a therapeutic tool in a very prescribed, confined setting in which they are being led ultimately back to the valley of the shadow of death where they will experience that transformation, but as a means of avoiding that valley. Even I work with Eastern folks, with Eastern religions and Buddhists, they still don't have, what do you do for your sin? That's right. They still don't have, what do I do for my weakness? They still don't have, how do I cope with my, you know, with my ultimate uh, sinfulness? And I can tell you the conflict that that comes to the the, the, tra the trauma victims, particularly war trauma victims, comes because they don't know how to understand and internalize the story, the experience they went through that they can have peace with. Their mind is regurgitating up the memories. Their mind is regurgitating up the emotions because they can't have, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. It's not right. It's wrong. Their mind is saying no, no, no. And, and as we help them walk through that experience and come to an understanding of the events that they can have peace internal with themselves with, then the regurgitation, the nightmares, the intrusive thoughts will fade away. Um, I was division psychiatrist for the 24th and 3rd Infantry Division, and I've dealt with a lot of soldiers in, from Iraq that went through things like this. And ultimately, the healing from trauma is a change in our thinking and understanding about the events, not a chemical. And, and there's actually been some recent research that if you do some preparatory psychological assessments and worldview, philosophical understanding of things prior to going into a combat experience, it provides resilience and protection against trauma if you ha can have some of those 
um, things in place before you go. A couple of hands. Yes. Uh, that's a counterfeit meditation according to you, but isn't there a genuine meditation where you dwell on God and his goodness? And, yes. And then that is a healing meditation, a meditation in that form. Yes, well. we are to meditate. The Bible talks about meditation all the time, but you notice all the, every time, it's very interesting also, every time that the Bible talks about meditation, it always has a focus of some aspect of God's creation, his nature, his character, his law. We're meditating on something with content. Interestingly enough, every other religion of the world, every, 100% of every religion of the world, including false Christianity and false Judaism and everything else, has this empty, centering meditation as part of it. Their meditations do not have the biblical. And, and I was at a conference at Harvard University uh, where they were teaching this type of stuff, and, and they had representatives from all these different religions, and they were talking about the same religion, the same form of meditation in, in their religion. And I got up to the to the uh, mic and I asked the question, and there were some Protestants there, the Catholic, Jews, um, Church, Christian Science, and all these other things were there. Okay, uh, a monk, a Buddhist monk, uh, Hindu, all these people were there. And I got up and asked the question. This type of meditation, and I'm asking for the Jew, Jewish rabbi and the Christian pastors and priests, I'm asking this question. This type of meditation you're describing, is it in Scripture? And they all said no. It's not in Scripture. Now that's a red flag to me. Okay, so and this is the two... So we have the Eastern meditation counterfeit, which is making inroads into Christianity because Christianity has accepted another counterfeit, which is a legal system of pardon for misdeeds rather than the what we talked about the psalmist describing an actual regeneration and transformation of heart and character. All right, we're going to skip Tuesday. Tuesday has some interesting stuff. We're going to skip it. We're going to go to Wednesday's lesson. Uh, Wednesday's lesson, the second paragraph, it says, The Ten Commandments are not an alternative to love. They help us, they help guide us in how we are to show love both to God and humankind. However much it might transcend the letter of the law, love is not in conflict with the law. The idea that love for God and love for our neighbor uh, void the Ten Commandments make about as much sense as saying that love for nature voids the law of gravity. I thought there was, they're, they're really trying here. Didn't you think they were really trying here? I, I really, there's, they're, they're, they're pointing us in the right direction. They're, they, they've, they've got the right attitude, but, but I, I just thought it could have been worded a little, little bit more succinctly or more directly. Um, I would have liked to see it say something like, um, instead of um, love is not in conflict with the law, that law, the law is love. That's what the law is. The law of the Lord. It's, it's love. That's what it is. And, uh, of course, Scripture says that many places, so any other things. So talks about the law not being uh, voided or, or being uh, done away with or negated. Do the Ten Commandments ever get voided? No. Do they ever become obsolete? No. Yes. <laughs> they never get voided, but they do become obsolete. Yes, when do they become obsolete? What's the new covenant? Where's the, where's the law going to be written? See, once it's written in everybody's heart and mind, it's, it's purpose on stone. Is its purpose on stone necessary anymore? It doesn't need to be on stone anymore once it's restored into the heart and minds of all believers. But it never gets voided because now it's where it's supposed to be. The reason it got written on stone, it didn't get created at Sinai, guys. Get this, get your reminder on this. The law of God did not get created at Sinai. I'm going to even go this far. The law of God did not get created. No, it originates in the character of God and he didn't get created. It always was. 
the Ten Commandments got rolled down at Sinai because it didn't exist where God actually put it in Eden. And God put it in Eden in the heart of man. That's where the law was. And once it's put back in the heart of man, it doesn't need to be on stone anymore. So um, some people really get distraught when I say that, like I'm undermining the law. I'm not undermining the law. It's kind of like this. When everyone's healthy, there's no longer a need for an MRI. We have no more disease to be exposed. And the purpose of the commandments were to act as a guardian and to expose the sickness of our character. Thursday's lesson. First paragraph. Although an inward conflict between the flesh and the spirit always will rage in the heart of every believer, the Christian life does not have to be dominated by defeat and failure and sin. I would see this as a qualified truth rather than an absolute truth. For instance, isn't it there times in the life of believers where internal battles rage? But isn't it true also there are times in the life of a believer where you experience genuine peace? It's not a constant, every moment, internal, miserable battle. There are times of peace that we experience with our Lord, isn't there? Yeah. So I would say this is true, but it's a qualified truth. Can we live victorious over fears, insecurities, and habits of sin in our life? Can we? Do we have, now get this question, do we have a role to play in that victorious living, or is something done in us with our consent but without our effort? Well, here's what one of the founders of our church put it this way, a couple of quotes. Lift him up, page 193. While God was working in Daniel and his companions to will and to do according to his good pleasure, they were working out their own salvation. Herein is revealed the outworking of the divine principle of cooperation, without which no true success can be attained. Human effort avails nothing without divine power. And without human endeavor, divine effort with many is of no avail. To make God's grace our own, we must act our part. Or um, Mind, Character, Personality, second volume, page 694. We are laborers together with God. This is the Lord's own wise arrangement. The cooperation of the human will and endeavor with divine energy is the link that binds men, uh, binds men up with one another and with God. The apostle says, "We are to labor. We are laborers together with God. Ye shall, uh, ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. Man is to work with the faculties that God has given him. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling." And then the last one is our high calling, page three ten. There are two grand. Two grand forces at work in the salvation of the human soul. Did you know that? Two grand forces. It requires the cooperation of man with divine agencies, divine influences, and a strong, living, working faith. It is in this way only that the human agent can become a laborer together with God. The Lord does not sanction in any one of us a blind, stupid credulity. I love that. How much of Christianity teaches people blind, stupid credulity called blind faith? No, the Lord does not sanction anyone. He does not dishonor the human understanding. But far from this, he calls for the human uh, will to be brought into connection with the divine will. He calls for the ingenuity of the human mind, the tact, the skill to be strenuously exercised in searching out the truth as as it is in Jesus. Your labors together with God. Isn't that awesome? Okay, so how do you see the balance? Do we save ourselves? No. The medical model, again, if it's a legal model, it's all messed up. If it's a legal model, it's all messed up. 
Because how can we work? Jesus paid the full price. If we're working, then we're contributing something to the price that Jesus paid. And we're undermining the full price that he paid for us. Blah, blah, blah. It gets all messed up. Because that model's wrong. When you understand the medical model, then you understand that Jesus achieved by himself, without anybody's help, any human help, the remedy to sin. But the application of the remedy to individual lives is a cooperative effort between that believer and the Holy Spirit and God working in our life to receive and apply what Christ has achieved for them. We're in constant physical therapy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then Friday's lesson. We'll see if we can have some fun with Friday's lesson. Top paragraph. It says, The life of the Christian is not all smooth. He has stern conflicts to meet. Severe temptations assail him. The flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. The nearer we come to the close of earth's history, the more delusive and ensnaring will be the attacks of the enemy. His attacks will grow fiercer and more frequent. Those who resist light and truth will become more hardened and unimpressible and more bitter against those who love God and keep his commandments. So the question I wanted to ask the class is, as we approach the end of time, how are Satan's attacks becoming more fierce and more intense and more delusive than they have been in the past? How are his attacks different today than they have been through human history? They're coming from internal sources rather than just external. You mean internal to the church, not to the person? Within the church. Okay, so attacks from within. But, but what about in Christ's day? The church in Christ's day was a Jewish nation. That system was certainly corrupted from within, wasn't it? Okay. Other ideas. Do you think the unfolding of scientific knowledge that has occurred in our generation has contributed to Satan's ability to attack your mind and your brain? In ways like never before in human history. Let's start with some examples. How about, for instance designer drugs today. For never before in human history. In human history, you look back, they had nicotine, tobacco with the American Indians. They had, uh, you know, certain cultures used mushrooms in their, in their ceremonies, but it wasn't commonly used. They had alcohol of a very weak nature. Opium in some settings. But did they have... Even with that, let's just look at it. Did they have all the designer drugs we have today? Ecstasy, LSD, um, PCP, um, uh, the synthetic marijuana, if you've heard about synthetic marijuana. Um, it's all these different things that we're doing now with designer drugs that are just designed to really damage the brain. And what about alcohol? Let's look at alcohol. Is alcohol today what alcohol was back when Noah got off the ark? <laughs> Not even close. Not even close. Well, we got distilleries. We've got all. I mean, we have and we have glamorized it too. And not only that, think about our ability to market it, the commercials, the the sexualization of it. You see what we can do. So it's, it's much more, it's much stronger, much more available, much easier access. What about fast foods and depleted nutrients in our food source? Do you think that has an effect on our brains and makes it? Oh, there's no question. It, it makes us more moody, more irritable, more anxious, less self-control, less self-governance. All these things happen. Multiple chemical additives in your food. Look at the labels next time. See if you can even say some of the things that you're eating, which alter human health and human physiology. And if your body's health is altered, guess what's happening to your brain? Your brain function is being affected. What about pollution? Just read an article today on 
uh, research shows that air pollution increases mental illness. With every particle part per million that goes up in the air pollutant index that you breathe, the, the number of people with mental illness in that community goes up. So air pollution affects your brain. Do you think it's the only pollution that affects your brain? We know it's well documented. Kids in the inner cities are eating paint chips, high lead, okay, damaging their brain. Now, pollution damages our brain. What about internet and the information access? Do you think Satan uses the internet to get to people like he's never gotten to people before? Mm-hmm. Uh, increase available to all the vices, gambling, pornography, um, shopping. Okay, I went to meddling now, didn't I? <laughs> but seriously, the internet, uh, it's wonderful, wonderful things we can do. We, can, we have a website. We're, we're sharing the gospel on the internet. You can do great things with it. But it's also a tool that can be doing great harm. And what's the, what's the data, Stanley? Is it, uh, is it 25% of web searches are pornographic web searches? At least. At least 25% of all web searches are pornographic. So one quarter of the Internet activity. Yeah. What about entertainment, movies, TV? <laughs> I mean, it, when, 1948... 1948 was television started in America. Not until 1948 was this available for Satan to hurt our brains with. And it changes the developing brain. More television a child watches, it actually structurally will alter that brain so by the time the adolescence happens that their limbic emotion circuits are more developed and the prefrontal cortex where they reason, think, and self-govern is less developed. They have a physically structural different brain the more theatrical television they watch. This is, this is another way to, to undermine our spiritual development and growth. But not only the, the, the medium itself, what about what's being taught through that medium? The principles. Uh, you, you think, uh, what about spiritualism on television? When I was a kid, it was I Dream of Genie and Bewitched. Has, has it gotten worse than that since then? Oh, it's huge. Yeah, it's way in the back. Well, I want to go back to poor spiritualism when you were talking about the brain yeah. and our young people. Yeah. And uh, 90% or more of the children that I test are very visual. They're not auditory. And, and you mentioned the television, and the uh, television sets up the props for the children. It doesn't allow the children to think, to analyze, That's right. to create their own uh, pictures. That's right. It's all done for them. That's right. And it affects the brain. It affects it. actually changes its structure. Exactly right. Um, and then dense cities with increased opportunities for crime, drugs, gangs, extortion, less time in nature, uh, less uh, faster-paced lifestyle, less time to reflect and meditate on God's creation and spend time with him. Uh, how about normalization of non-marriage living arrangements and devaluing of marriage? Um, evolutionary theories and degradation of God. Now, that wasn't until the late 1800s that that came in. Up until then, even if people, you know, I mean, everybody, even the, 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 knew there, there was God. Isaac Newton believed in God. Social isolation, families no longer living together to support and encourage each other. I mean, do you see things happening that Satan has gotten fierce in his attacks against our brains, our minds, our characters? Yeah. And our church is right in the middle of it. Not immune. And our church is not immune. Thank you very much. Yes. Yes, we are human too, aren't we? 
Absolutely. All right, uh, uh, as we close up, for, uh, I'm going to have prayer. I want to make a quick announcement. Next week, two weeks from today, two weeks from today, we're having potluck uh, for our, our Christmas potluck for our class. We're going to have the potluck at one. You can bring, we're going to be right next door in our kitchen like before. And then um, afterwards, um, we, we're going to have a let's talk. And if you'd like a particular subject matter talked about in that, uh, send an email. Send us an email. Uh, send me an email. And let me know what you'd like us to talk about that day. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your nature, your character, the way you have designed your universe to run. And as we open our eyes and look around, we see that this, uni- this world, this earth, is not running the way you built it to run. It's really, really gotten off track with, with all these destructive activities going on. And too, too many times those activities have become part of our lives. We ask that you will give us wisdom. Uh, take what the Christ has achieved and take your spirit and reproduce it in our hearts. Fill us with your love, love for you and love for each other. Set us free from our fears and insecurities that we can go out and love, love this world, love our neighbors, love our community as you have loved us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.